Hey y'all, just to give you guys a heads up, the middle of the episode, we had some technical issues. We ended up having to stop recording and then re-record, which caused us to lose our train of thought. So you might see a jarring transition of topics at a certain point around maybe the 30 to 40 minute mark. I don't remember exactly where it was. I did my best to edit it out, but you might still notice it. Enjoy the episode. This 14-year-old boy we're talking about, he's being forced to sign a contract which basically says they control when he has his sensory implements. They can take it away anytime they want because he's being forced to sign this thing. It's going to make him very uncomfortable. What you're teaching him is whoever has power over you can make you do what they want. And we are live back with another episode of Shifting Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torin Kearns, and as usual, I'm joined by the Autism Sage herself, Mama Baden. How are you? I am doing well this afternoon, doing very well. How are you doing, Torin? I never ask you how you're doing. <laughs> Honestly, that's a good point. Um, it's the same. Yeah. I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. The sun is shining, as you like to say. It really is shining. I have windows behind me. It looks like heaven's gate is like shining upon me. <laughs> I think I've trained myself not to bother any autistic individuals with greetings or small talk. So I never think about asking things that I would ask my friend who wants me to ask her how she's doing. Because <laughs> I've been yeah. told so many times, why are you asking me that by autistic adults? Well, the thing is, it's because when most people say, how are you doing? They actually don't care how you're yeah. doing. Yes. You're different. I'm not saying you're not, but like a lot of autistic people, it's like, good. Like, how's your day going? They expect, eh, it's going okay. They don't actually want to hear how it's going. Yeah. Especially yeah. if it's bad. They really don't want to hear if it's bad. <laughs> They don't want to hear when it's bad. All right. So Torin, you pick the topic. What are we talking about? I really want to do an episode on consent on teaching autistic children and young adults how what consent is and how to express consent or lack thereof. And that's a really important topic. I've heard some things recently. You've mentioned some things about some of your clients that just got me thinking. So one of my concerns is in teaching and to a lesser extent caregiving and in medical professions mm -hmm. we don't ask children in general like do they want to be touched do they want to wear this do they want this do they want that are they okay with this are they okay with that we almost mm -hmm. never ask them we never and we almost we really almost never ask autistic people especially mm -hmm. if they don't use mouth words mm -hmm. because frankly we don't care how they feel about it because their children we're the adults we can do what we want mm -hmm. and i feel like that's bad Yes, that's very, I don't feel like it's bad. It is bad for maybe some reasons that aren't entirely obvious. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I'd like you to do is you told me about a story about one of your clients that mm -hmm. made me want to do this episode. So can you recite that story? And I'll tell you what some of my thought process on it is. I will, but now I have to share another story because you've triggered that story based on one of the things you mentioned in regards to consent because I think it's important for our listeners who are parents, caregivers, and teachers as well, but um, parents and caregivers in terms of kids getting dressed. So I was, I think most of the listeners know, or I've mentioned it before that I went to Ghana and did some volunteer work, and I was called into a meeting, and there was dad, mom, adult son, 1920, and then a slew of other people at the table, right? And dad was trying to get supports in place because he was having trouble with his son, not getting up, not going and doing what he needed to do, blah, blah, blah. And the son was non-speaking. There was no alternate method of communication that was provided. And, and I understand why it probably just wasn't available in the area. However, um, the interesting thing was I asked the dad, so does he pick out his clothes in the morning to get dressed? And the dad looked at me and said, no, his helper uh, does that for him. I said, well, he's 19. I think he can choose his shirt on his own. And the dad looked at me and said, you know, he's tried to go and get a shirt he wanted to wear, but we just didn't let him. We thought we had to tell him. I said, why? He said, I don't know, because he couldn't tell us. I said, but he was telling you. He went and got the shirt that he wanted to wear. I said, so from now on, he gets to pick out his own clothes and wear what he wants. And I'm quite sure he'll be more motivated to leave the house now that he looks the way he wants to look. So that is a simple example of consent off of what you said, where parents direct, parents direct, and kids who are non-speaking or don't have maybe 
um, the ability to articulate some of the things that they want to do and they articulated or communicated in other ways that are shut down, right? Shut down. He was clearly saying. So it's one of those things where, you know, you just said like, that's something easy to give consent over, right? Allow them to wear what they want or ask them what they want, whatever it is, um, depending on their age. I'm not saying that your kids can walk around. Well, I don't know. They can walk around in rain boots every day if they want. Who cares? They're kids. I mean, who cares? But um, that was a story that I thought of. All right. So do you want me to go into the story that you want me to share? Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. So um, I was sharing a story with Torin um, because I was very frustrated that a therapist at a school um, gave a fidget to a student. She did not communicate to the teachers that this student was going to have these fidgets in order to regulate himself. She just gave them to the student and then had the student sign what she called a contract. So she was very proud of this contract and she emailed it to everyone. And of course, when I looked at it, I was infuriated, number one, it was very, um, it was in written in pencil, number one. So that's just disrespectful, right? This is a teenager. And even if it wasn't a teenager, if you're going to make a contract, type it up and print it, right? It's a contract. If even Secondly, the IEPs are yes. written in, are, are, are at least typed out. Yes. So then I was really irritated because the contract, in my viewpoint, was not a contract. There was nothing that the child, the student got out of the contract, and I'm air quoting, um, and the contract was written in the terms of, I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not. Like that was just the whole thing. So it was setting him up for failure and there was no motivation, nothing reinforcing for the child to follow the contract. It's like, if you don't do these things, what does he get, right? Um, so I was talking to Torin about it and Torin um, felt that he probably didn't even read and understand the contract, right? It probably wasn't really explained to him. And the therapist, I think at some point in a meeting we had later said, oh, I read it to him. And I'm thinking, what does that really mean, right? Does he even understand what it means? It's not really a contract. Uh, so that was the story I, that has um, facilitated this topic of consent. So tell us, tell us your viewpoint on that, Torin. Why? Well, well, one of the things I'd like to make clear is I didn't say this is a uh, 14-year-old boy we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I didn't say he didn't understand. My issue was that he didn't have a choice. I asked whether he had a choice or yes. whether or not to sign it. Exactly. Thank you. Knowing what the answer was. It's mm -hmm. not a contract. Yes. If you're being forced into signing it. Yes. He had no so choice. That was one of my issues. Another mm -hmm. one of my issues is, and it's, one of, and it's the reason I want to do this podcast. There's a lot of talk lately about consent in terms of like sexual consent mm -hmm. and things like that among mm -hmm. older individuals and older children with disabilities, especially in light of the whole Andrew Tate thing, which is important. I'm not saying it's not important, but oftentimes we look at it at two, we look at the funnel head, we look at the iceberg and we mm -hmm. don't look at stuff under it. So this is a perfect example. This 14 year old boy we're talking about, he's being forced to sign a contract, which basically says they control when he has his mm -hmm. sensory implements. They can take it away. And they did take they it away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, I will not fidget in front of other students. I will not I will not fidget in class. I will not. Basically, the, it, it, the contract defeated the purpose of fidgeting. Yes. Which would lead to dysregulation. Yes. So what got me upset the most is you're teaching this young boy that consent means nothing. Because mm -hmm. his consent means nothing. Because he's being forced to sign this thing. It's going to make him very uncomfortable. What you're teaching him is what consent is, is whoever has power over you can mm -hmm. make you do what they want. Yep. And how a lot of us male autistics internalize that, because a lot of people think you just take a bunch of 30-year-old men, four-year-old men who've been completely indoctrinated and say, hey, st stop being mean to women. Like, that's going to do something. Yeah. yeah. It, you have to start when they're young. Mm -hmm. And you have to tell them, you, you can't just tell them, you need to ask for consent when you yourself are not practicing consent with them. Because yeah. what they're going to what they're going to realize is, oh, the person in power has consent, and if I want to make sure my consent isn't being violated, I have to make sure I'm always in power. Mm -hmm. I'm always the one in control of the situation because that's 
that's safety. That's who that's whose consent is on the person who's in charge. That's what that's what we're internalizing because yes. that's what we're being taught. So that's what upset me the most about this whole thing. I, I believe I when you told me the story, I said something about I better not see a single one of any of these teachers complaining about students being brainwashed by Anthony Tate or any of the Red Bull mm -hmm. community. I better not because mm -hmm. they're helping them. They're funneling these, in my opinion, they're funneling these kids mm -hmm. into that community by doing stuff like that. Yep. So that's the reason I want to do this episode. It's not just you should be nicer to women and telling men that when they're 30 years old. It's about practicing it now and respecting mm -hmm. children's consent now. So he'd actually very clearly in mouth words expressed his wants and needs. This mm -hmm. was that was not communication was not the issue. They simply chose to ignore it. Yep. It's exactly and when you what do you do things like that. This is what you're teaching them. This type of stuff I had to learn. Because unfortunately, that's kind of how the world works right now. We're working to change it. But as of now, it's so the person who has power is the person who gets their way. That's how it works. Yep. That is exactly how it works. I have a story. It's sort of related to this. I have a friend who would help me out a lot and taught me a lot of social skills, helped me out when, when I was in college and give me a ride back from, because where I went to school was far away from where my home is. So in between semesters, he would give me a ride back at very reduced rates, not even price of gas, because I was a broke college student. And being on the spectrum and coming from projects, I was even more broke than a normal college student. So one day, about a week after a semester started, we'd just gotten back. He drove me back up from New York City to Whitelandia, where I was going to college, mm -hmm. which is just in the boonies. And he calls me up just randomly. He's like, yo, I need you to be outside in five minutes. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, there's a, I have some stuff out in a tuckaway mm -hmm. in like a little garage, which is literally in the middle of the woods, like half hour away off campus. I need you to help me pull my stuff out. I'm like, okay, I got some homework to do. Um, I'll hit you up in a couple of hours. It's like, no, no, no. I need you here now. I'm like, dude, I'm busy. And he goes, he calls me. So this is over text. And he calls me. He goes, Farm. So I did you a favor by driving you up at a reduced rate. When someone does you a favor, if they mm -hmm. ask you to do something for them, you do it, no questions asked. What? And that was an important lesson for me because it taught me when you accept help from somebody, they own a part of you. They're looking for something. These are some of the lessons I had to learn growing up. Yeah. And then these are stuff a lot of men, especially a lot of men from lower income households are learning growing up. And then people are wondering why they're so susceptible to propaganda from like the red pill community, from people like Andrew Tate. Because we're being grown up basically saying that if we're not in control of every situation, somebody will control us. Yep. And that starts when we're kids. Yes. And the reason I brought that up is you see stuff like that even when you're kids. You see that sort of just violation, that sort of insistence that you need to be in charge. What young boys are told, and I promise we're not going to make this all about young men, but I have a platform, so I'm going to use it. How many times are young boys taught you have to be leaders? If they get in trouble, if someone told you to jump off a bridge, would you follow you either are a leader or a follower. And a follower is bad. You want to be a leader. Some people aren't cut out to be leaders. So what nope, you get is you're basically taught if somebody else is leading you, that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. You yep. need to be in charge. Yeah. And then we wonder how this translates into the sort of misogyny and power tripping that we see in cops, that we see in domestic relationships. Yeah. How? We don't know. Like, we'll just tell them, stop being next to women. That, that will solve the problem. We're still going to treat we're still going to treat kids like crap. We're still going to teach disabled kids like crap. We're still going to teach poor kids like crap. We're still going to teach toxic masculinity to every young boy as they're growing up, so it's haunts mm. them for the rest of their lives. Ugh. But we're 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 going to tell them to stop being to women. And that's going to change. Yeah, things. exactly. No, and and I think that you are making a really valid point in terms of it starts when our kids are young. We don't want to wait until they are a certain age to start teaching that. And it's, you know, I think that part of it is for some reason, uh, parents, therapists, educators, it's like the, the role of being the adult in charge doesn't mean that you have to control everything, right? There are a lot of things that you can um, give kids autonomy based on their age, a uh, really, really simple way. You're still in control of what you offer, right? And and I, I say that in terms of, um, you know, like I said, with the clothes, you know, even if it's a matter of what people eat, right? Um, there's a lot of push around 
um, making kids and forcing kids to eat things without their consent, because they're literally getting food shoved in, snuck in and all these other things. And they're not, you must eat what I made for dinner. Yeah. You must eat it because it's insulting to me personally, if you don't eat it. You know, I think of it in terms of you are teaching when we do that, we're teaching young children that their opinion, their, um, keeping themselves safe is not important, right? Because you have to do what people say, you have to do what people say. And I always tell parents, um, if you, I'm not saying that your kids get to go to the store and pick out everything you buy at the grocery store. I'm saying you bring the items that you're okay with your child having in regards to snacks or foods, and then they choose from what you have, right? That's how you start eating. I mean, kids don't start eating by going to the grocery store and making choices of food. If kids eat macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets, somebody must have given them mac cheese and chicken nuggets, right? Like that must have been something offered. They didn't think about it on their own. So it's it's a matter of, and I know I'm talking about food, but, and food is another. No, that's very important because I'm glad you brought that up because food is a way that a lot of children from a very early age mm-hmm. have a lot of autistic children have their consent violated. Because autistic children, what do we hear about them? They're picky eaters. So basically, we're going to force them to eat what we want them to eat. Mm-hmm. Because we got told this is what they should be eating. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, it's really interesting. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on parents. But I remember... Um, this uh, lovely, lovely mother, right? And when I share stories about parents, it's not about saying people are doing things wrong. It's just, we are in the mix of doing life day to day. And so sometimes we're not aware um, of uh, what message we're giving our kids. And uh, this uh, mother had this restaurant that made French fries that she absolutely loved, right? And all she thought about was, I can't wait until my kid can try these French fries. And her kiddo's not into French fries. And she struggled. Like she struggled with and wanted to work on getting him to eat those fries. And it took a while for her to realize, no, just let it go, right? If he is, we're not going to shove them, right? We're, he's not um, giving his consent to eat the fries or work on eating the fries. He's clearly communicated. He's not interested in the fries. So we're not going to spend a lot of time doing it. It took her a while because it was something that she had an expectation for. And I think that's where some of the consent stuff, whether it's making children sign a contract that's not really a contract or making children sit where you want them to sit or making them wear what you want them to wear or making them take their hood off, even though they need that to protect their sensory system. Those things are all all people trying to control the children because they, they think that it's a reflection on themselves as to how they're parenting or educating if children are not complying, they're not conforming, right? Like, why does your child have a hood on every time we go inside a mall? Well, that protects their sensory system, right? So then people want to control the child and it's just a cycle that never ends because of conformity and wanting to do what everyone else does or feeling pressure or whatever it is that people feel. Um, It's just not good for our kids. It just gives the wrong message. Wrong, 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 wrong message. Uh, What what do you got to say about that, Tarn? I know I'm just like... It is very important this need for control. And I get it. Mm-hmm. There needs to be structure. You can't just let a kid do whatever they want because they're children. And oftentimes what they want could be dangerous or just not possible. But a lot of this need for control violates a kid's consent. Yes. And it starts so early on. That sense of the person in power, even if they even if they don't think of it in those terms, they're children, they're internalizing. The person in power is the person whose consent matters. Consent is who's in power. That's what they're learning. You have to unteach yourself that to be able to teach children about consent, especially autistic children, especially autistic boys. Mm -hmm. Because as men, you combine this, whoever's in power has control with the constant droning on of you need to be dominant, you need to be strong, you need to be in charge. If you are not, you are a weak man. Only weak men are led. Strong mm-hmm. men lead. Weak men are led. Yeah. Because that's drilled into us combined with 
the real world samples of I don't want any French fries. I've made it clear I don't want any French fries. Yeah, I'm still having French fries forced down my throat, shoved in front of me, told to eat it. And if I don't eat it, everyone's disappointed in me. Mm -hmm. If you combine those two things, no wonder we're getting this generation of men who don't know how to act. They don't know how to function once they're adults. It's like, of course they don't. Yes. And then we're going to tell them to stop being dicks to women. Yeah. I want to make it clear. I'm not saying we shouldn't be not saying that because we absolutely do need to beat that in everybody's head. Stop being dicks to women. Yeah. However, we need to do more work on the front end because by the time we get to the back end, it's it's only going to be but so effective. The people who are going to stop are people who already like have some introspective ability to mm -hmm. understand what they're doing. Yeah. If you've already been brainwashed, like. I had to deal with that growing up mm -hmm. of people just tell you like you do like I read my IEP on this on this podcast about six months ago or so. And you you guys know IEPs. It's all I will, I will not sort of language. It's very violating. It's in, in and of itself, the entire IEP is just one gigantic violation of a child's consent because they have no consent. They're forced to sign it if they sign it at all. They're orphaned. We weren't showing our IEPs. We had to demand to see our IEPs when we were in high school. And we didn't even know we were allowed to do that. I think one of the members of my class demanded to see it. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh, you're allowed to do that? And then legally, the teachers had to tell us, yes, technically, you're allowed to do that. They, were just, they weren't lying. They were lying by omission. Ugh. So then we finally, as like 17-year-olds, we got to see exactly what sort of shit they were saying about us. Well, you know, it's interesting you brought up the IEP because when I um, I met with a kiddo um, last night and they have an upcoming IEP, he is 15 years old. And I said, oh, are you prepared for the IEP meeting? He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I think you should be participating. You're 15 years old. And his mom looked at me and said, you know, I asked the school because I thought he should participate as well. And they said it wasn't necessary. I said, it's very necessary. This is his life going forward. He has a right to say and consent to whether or not he wants to learn how to have a 10 minute conversation with his peers. Who are we to say that's what he needs to do in life to be successful? He's 15 years old. He has a right to say what he wants for his own communication, social skill, um, peer relationships. And I think it's important for kids to be a participant. I think it's important to ask them. You know, a lot of times parents will say, well, I don't know, ask your kid. It doesn't matter if they're non-speaking, non-verbal, you can ask them, you can show them. They know exactly what they want and what they do not want. They're very clear on that. Like you said before, people just don't listen because they don't want to give consent. They don't want them to have autonomy. They just want compliance, compliance, compliance. That does not build safe adult interaction. And we've heard it over and over and over again, not giving our kids the opportunity to consent to things teaches them to be victims. And that is how children grow up or get hurt when their kids or grow up to get hurt. It, kids really do make decent choices if we allow them to. Allow me to play devil's advocate. Okay, sure. Here, here's the thing. As a parent, you are entirely judged on how your kid acts, especially mm -hmm. in public. Mm -hmm. And as we know, that's the only thing that matters is how other people perceive you as a parent. Now, could that cause some long-term damage? Probably, but that that's not your fault. That's not it's not your problem. Once they're twenty and they don't know how to give consent, or they don't know how to realize someone else isn't giving consent, that that that's not your fault anymore because they're adults and they're expected to make their own decisions. What's important for you is between the ages of zero and about 16 to 18, that the people around you think that your kid listens to what the hell you have to say, especially if they have a disability. And I really hope my sarcasm is coming across here because of course, everything I just said is bullshit. The important thing is raising your child be a quote unquote functioning member of society. My definition of functioning means they can live whatever life they choose, they're able to live be it with supports or without supports. They're able to do that. They have access to supports they need. They can be adjusted to the society around them, meaning they're not doing things to violate other people. Mm -hmm. They're not hurting themselves and not hurting others. They have some social ability. I do think that's important because I think most people do want at least some social interaction to a certain mm -hmm. extent, some social ability, some ability to work. Because unfortunately, the way our societies, our economics are geared, you have to be able to somehow bring in an income. That's why I define as functioning member of society. 
and that's your number one goal. And par- parents understand this, they do, but they think how you get there is control and compliance. Because unfortunately, how our actual world works is once you're an adult, people have control over you and they expect you to be compliant. And they think, okay, we need to tailor the kids to that. But it's actually the opposite. Because the world itself expects compliance, mm-hmm. you have to have kids who can advocate for themselves. Of course, of course. You have to be, they have to know how to advocate for themselves when they're young so they can do it when they're adults. Mm-hmm. And they're never going to learn if you ignore their attempts to advocate for themselves. Because yep. then what they're eventually going to do is just stop doing it because it's like, well, would you continuously bang your head into a brick wall? No. If you know you're getting no benefit from it, if yep. they advocate when they're young and it's ignored, they're eventually going to stop advocating for themselves because what's the point? Yes. Want to honor those requests they learn if I stand up for myself, if I say what my needs are, if I communicate it in some way, shape, or form, yep. they will be respected because then they'll carry that into adulthood. Where yep. you have to, as a disabled person, you have to be able to advocate for yourself in some form or people will take advantage of you. Yes, they will. And what's interesting is, you know, kids advocate for themselves all the time. It's just people don't like them doing it. So that 14-year-old that I shared, he is very clear about saying, please stop talking so much. Please stop coming close proximity, right? So instead, because no one respects that, no one listens to him when he self-advocates, the teachers keep talking and repeating and talking and repeating and coming up close to him. And then he ends up saying it much clearer, which is get the hell out of my face, right? He said it the other way. No one listened. No one heard what he had to say. So now, you know, they want to do a whole behavior plan because he's telling the teacher to back off. And I said, it sounds like to me, he was just advocating for himself and nobody listened. Oh, and now we have, we, now we have to beat that defiance out of him. Yeah, oh, that's, that, that's not good. How, how dare he be defined? I mean, he yeah. still needs to be a strong, independent man, but he, he can't advocate for himself. No, we have to take that away. He needs to, he needs to be a nice, docile little, mm-hmm. little creature that mm-hmm. uh, does whatever we tell him until he's 18. And we expect him to suddenly be able to advocate for himself entirely with no ramp up or training whatsoever. Yep. You, you, you see, you guys see the double standards here. Yes. It, it's why th- this is all bullshit. It doesn't work. And it's done ass backwards. Yep. I I love it when um, it's really, it's cute because it's just coming from a place of parents looking for some one thing, but they miss the other thing, right? And so I love it when parents uh, put things out and and their child pushes stuff away and they say, well, I don't know what they want. I said, well, apparently they don't want anything that you have to offer because they've pushed everything you have away. So you need to come up with some other stuff, right? Like, you don't know what they want, but you know what they don't want, right? They've given their clear communication, right? They're not consenting to those items. So come with some new stuff. Um, but I think that, you know, the control thing, I, I'm going to go back to the concept of consent, right? And and in terms of, you know, we're sharing this topic, we're, we're wanting to talk about this to shift the narrative around consent, because we are thinking of how to keep our autistic individuals safe throughout their life. And when you don't help them learn consent, if you don't offer them the opportunity to consent, um, to deny, to say no, you're really taking away a huge life skill. And I don't know if people see it that way. When we talk about consent, right? One of the things that we think about is consent as far as asking kids to do things. I know that a lot of parents think that way in terms of, you know, do I ask them if they want to go to the park? So there are a few things that I want to touch on. One is consent about play. <laughs> one is consent about body. And one is consent about socializing. So in regards to play, one of the things that I always say is I, you know, for lack of a better way to explain it, follow the child's lead, right? But not just follow the lead. I actually, you know, ask, hey, can I join in the Play-Doh, right? And they can consent and say, yes, they want me to join or or not. And that is going to build a relationship of trust. And they're more likely to invite me in or allow me to play and consent to me playing the next time or maybe shortly after, right? Maybe they're not ready for me to play. The other is around um, the, the touching, right? This hand over hand, underhand, all these things. It is so important for us to ask children for consent. I don't care if you are helping them open a container. 
ask them, is it okay if I have your hold your hand to help you? Is it okay if I'm not talking about necessarily parents grabbing their children's hand across the street? I'm talking about if your child is doing something and engaging in something and you want to either help them or you want to make sure they do it right, which is really why it's typically driven, right? I want to have them do it successfully, so I'm going to do it for them. Um, you know, allow them to problem solve and ask them because sometimes kids really want to work it out. Like they really want to problem solve it out. And sometimes it's okay if they don't, you know, it's not supposed to be they master and do something with a hundred percent, right? Good job. Good job. It's not what we're supposed to hear all day. Sometimes they can't get the top off, right? That's okay. The next time they'll try to do it a little differently. Then the next time they'll try to do it differently. And then maybe they'll problem solve how to do it and they can do it on their own. We really need to think about allowing our kids to make those mistakes instead of just embarking on their consent of wanting help, right? They may not want help at that time. And the last one is the doggone birthday parties. I don't even know how much to say. If your kid's not invited to birthday parties, if your kid doesn't want to go to birthday parties, just don't go. It's for the children. When you force them to go because you think they need to learn to be social, right? And I'm talking about little kids, right? Little ones that are just like, oh my gosh, it's sensory overload. Or I don't like balloons, right? Clowns are sensory overwhelming. Putting them in the situation is not going to help, but you're also bringing them into a sensory overwhelming um, environment without their consent. And they're actually protesting typically very loudly. And birthday parties are not the end of the world. It is not the key to success. Many people don't go to birthday parties and they do just fine. Some places don't even have birthday parties. That is all about parents wanting to feel included and you know, I'm just going to be very frank and my parents know you just need to move over that. Just get past that. Like get over. It's not about you being included. And I'm sorry if some people don't like to hear that, but it's not. It's about what is in the best interest of your child. If they're not interested in going to the birthday party for whatever reason, they may not even like the kid. Don't bring them right now. I understand sometimes there are relatives, their cousins, their cultural things where everybody has to go work it out so they don't have to go. Seriously, it's really not worth the sensory trauma. It really isn't. It, I just really, one of the things that literally drives me crazy, I mean, I just want to pull my hair out is when I see a social media video of an autistic child at their own birthday party with a cake in front of them. Everyone is singing happy birthday and the kid is literally holding his ear saying, ah, screaming because it's too freaking much and everybody keeps doing it. What the freak is that about? I don't know. What is that about? Tradition. It's tradition. You, you sing happy birthday at, at birthday. Ask them, do you want us to sing happy birthday? You know, if you go to conferences where autistic individuals are, they don't even allow us to do clapping. We now do the thing that you do for the, um, uh, the deaf population where it's silent because it can be overwhelming for adults as well who are like jazz hands. Yeah, yeah. That's actually pretty cool, really. That's actually, I, I like that a lot. It, it's interesting you brought that up. So me and Stacy, last time we met in person, which was a few weeks ago, we actually had a debate about this exact topic where I was of the favor of sometimes you should drag your kids to a birthday party because social, this is for, we were preparing for our social skills episode, which I don't even know which is coming out first at this point. I, I record these so out of order and edit them so out of order that, I don't know. I think this is going to come out before the social skills episode. Anyway, we were debating and I said, it, it, you need to start young because it kind of sucks having to learn social skills when you're older because people are less forgiving. When you put it this way, I changed my opinion on this because I didn't think what you're doing is you're putting them in an environment they explicitly don't want to be in. It's violating their consent. And it's once again, showing them if we have power over you, that's what consent is. Consent is who has power. I can't get over that because we do that so much with kids. And then once again, we wonder why that translates into adulthood. But the one question I have yes. for Stacy is kids will not want to do a lot of stuff that is good for them. Mm -hmm. but they won't want to eat vegetables. They won't want to brush their teeth. They won't want to do X, Y, and Z. They won't want to go to school. They won't want to do stuff that like sometimes you have to. They're, they're just, they won't want to put on clothes so they go out in public. And that's kind of a necessity. Mm -hmm. How can mm -hmm. you walk that line of keeping your child safe and growing in a healthy way 
without just mm-hmm. straight up just steamrolling over their wants and needs and their autonomy. Ooh, I love that question. All right. So the answer to that question is one, as a parent, we have to step outside of our own needs. Two, we have to get to know our child. When you know your child and you understand your child, and, and this is going to be, I'm not promoting you know, my business per se, but this is the reason I do parent coaching. When parents understand their child's sensory needs, they know when it's just a typical five-year-old protesting or if it is just because of their sensory needs, right? They know and understand what their child's threshold is. And I will say to anyone, when children are not wanting to go into a school environment or not go into a therapy setting, you need to go find out what the heck's going on because there's no reason children are going to protest unless something is uncomfortable. And when I say protest because it's uncomfortable, it could be, I don't wanna go to school today because I'm just freaking tired. I didn't sleep well last night, just like we don't always wanna go to work. But if you know that, then you get your kid and you nudge them to go to school, right? Because you know, you're, you know, they stayed up late watching a movie, whatever it is. Um, So I think it's a matter of if you know your child and then also when you validate their feelings and you say, I know it's really hard. I know it's really tough. It's it's hard for you to get up on a Monday because you sleep in on the weekend, but we just got to push through this. And I know it's really tough. And when you get home, you'll be able to, you know, hang out on the swing and, and no homework on Mondays, right? We only do homework Tuesday through Thursday. The child knows that you understand and respect them. And sometimes they're even more willing to push through that uncomfortable, right? Because they know they have that safety net. That's part of the thing. One of the things I learned from uh, one of the chapters in that book, um, Sincerely, Your Autistic Child, which I think every human being should read, um, but specifically, definitely every parent, caregiver, teacher, and have the family read it as well, right? But it is a matter of picking your battles as well. And, and sometimes we have to pick our battles. Now, I teach my parents um, non-negotiables, right? There are non-negotiables that sometimes kids are going to be uncomfortable. One non-negotiable is you've got to take medication if medication is something you have to take. I'm not talking about psychotropic ADHD. I'm talking about medication like if you have a fever, right? If you have need antibiotics, right? We have to get those down by any means necessary because it's a health concern. So sometimes it is not comfortable for most kids, right? To have to be forced to take medication, but it's a necessary health intervention. Um, The other is getting your teeth brushed. Getting your teeth brushed can be an excruciating sensory experience for many, many young kids that are autistic. And sometimes they're gonna cry and we try to provide all the sensory input. We try to get them regulated. We try to get as much comfort as possible, distraction, whatever. But if your teeth are not cleaned, then that can be a health risk. And it is worse to have to be sedated because you have a cavity. Like we have to look at what is the pro and the con consequence of each. Now we try to build their sensory system so it's not uncomfortable, but the reality of it is until we get that sensory system where it can you know, change toothbrushes. So we try lots of things. I'm not saying to torture them, but there are some things that are non-negotiables. The other is potty training. We're pooping in the toilet. I'm sorry, but we're not going to get a job pooping in the diaper, unless you have a medical reason why you can't, but we're not going to poop in the windowsill. We're not going to poop in the lunch bag. We are going to poop in the potty, right? We're going to poop in the potty when we're ready, right? There's signs to show us when they're ready, but that's a non-negotiable. We're going to potty train unless there are medical, physical reasons why we cannot. So sort of they pick your battles thing. So this is the way I look at it. I look at things as a job skill because my goal is for every individual, I don't care what disability you have, unless you have high medical restrictions, needs, where it's really just difficult. I think most people in the world can do something, right? Whether it's volunteer, whether it's for money, people like to get up with a purpose. Um, so I always look at the approach of what do I want for every little kiddo when a parent comes to me for support, I want us to build their skill set, And I don't really like using that term, but it's a term that everybody can relate to so that they can get a job one day. They can make a choice as to where they want to work. They can do something as an adult to take care of themselves, whatever that looks like. So there are certain things that are not a job requirement. Going to birthday parties is not a job requirement. Nobody cares if you went to birthday parties when you were a child. No one cares. 
tying your shoes is not a requirement for getting a job. Buy shoes that you don't need to tie. Marry someone who can tie them for you. I don't really care. You can get a job and not know how to tie your shoes. You don't need to have a well-balanced diet to get a job. That is not a requirement. I'm not saying I want children to live off junk foods. I'm saying whatever they eat, if they're not sick and they're thriving, just let it go. There are other things that are more important to spend our time on that get your child a job when they like communication is a job skill, right? Some form of communication is a job skill. Exactly. Multivitamins exist. I can't emphasize this enough. Mm -hmm. You can supplement anything they're missing because they won't eat to supplement it with a multivitamin. It's not as good as natural food. It's better than not having mm -hmm. it at all. Most multivitamins are cheap. They make them for kids. You can get them in any drugstore. I suggest getting them from Target, BJ's, or Costco, one of those big chain department stores where it's cheaper. They make chewables. Mm -hmm. They're all fruity flavored that most kids will eat. And if they don't eat that, they make pills. They make chew. They, they make like chalky ones. They make gummy ones. There are ways to make this happen at a relatively low cost. They have cookies now that are like freaking multivitamins. I mean, there are so many options now to get nutrition. And, you know, I'm not saying Protein that. Protein bars are a thing and they make them now that even kids will eat them. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, there's ways. The, the food thing, I don't want to dwell on it too much. The food no. thing is that it, it's one of the easiest ones to get around. Of all the hard stuff you have to deal with, having an autistic child, the food mm -hmm. thing is actually one of the easier ones. Yes. I just want to emphasize that. People put way too much into that. But before we wrap up, I want to mm -hmm. ask you a question. How do you talk to somebody, like let's say you have an autistic child who is a young adult. How do you talk about them about like consent, like traditional form of consent that people mm -hmm. think of? How would you go about that? Would you go about it differently than you would a neurotypical teenager? What, what would you do? Um, you know, actually, I would say that I would do it in a way or approach it like I would any child, whether they were autistic or not. However, for the autistic child, I may have more con concrete visuals. I may have something, a diagram to help them um, understand. I may have an example, right? of a contract or a video of what consent looks like um, just to help with that processing. Uh, but I, I am a firm believer in being honest with children. I am a firm believer in approaching kids to buy in to what I need them to buy into for their own safety, but it has to be done from their internal motivation perspective. I'm gonna, I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to use that word, internal motivation. It is now. <laughs> I should write that down, internal motivation perspective. Let me give an example, and this falls into the consent, right? I think I've told this story before about the teenager who walked around asking girls, you know, can I touch your boots, right? So he was asking for consent, but we kind of don't ask that question. So he was really having trouble understanding why he couldn't do that because the rule in his head was, I did ask consent. I did ask consent. So knowing him, right, well enough, I remembered that he really, really, really wants to have a girlfriend long-term and a wife, right? And so that's already motivating for him. So I turned it on him and I said, well, you know, one of the other things that I want you to think about is you asked every girl that you saw in the hallway and girls like to feel special. So if you really want to find someone, right, and I know that you said that you wanted to, you're going to have to learn to like discriminate, to decide who you really want to ask out. So you have to do a lot of observations first, right? And then we'll talk about what you can do to approach them. He got it because I was explaining it to him from a perspective he could relate to because he was already motivated for that long-term goal. Now, another child I might've had to approach a different way, right? Um, some kids, you just have to flat out say, okay, listen, you want the police to come or not? Because if you, <laughs> <laughs> and if they say no police, I'm like, okay, great, right? Some kids can't relate to that. Some kids can, it just depends on the kiddo. You know, Torin, listening to myself, I just think that I need to remind parents, and, and of course I'm reminding listeners, you really need to get to know your kiddo. Like you really do need to get to know your kiddo and understand your kiddo because that's how you can navigate a really good relationship of getting that um, joint consent, for lack of a better word, right? Where you're working together and not always doing that battle. I mean, you really do. No, it, it, exactly. One of the concerns 
that I really want to ask as the autism stage that you are, I really want to ask how you avoid this. So when I was in college, and I've talked about this before, mm-hmm. me and a lot of other autistic people who I hung out with got some really bad advice on like how to talk to women, how to approach women, how to handle certain situations. And when I say bad, like possibly get us arrested bad. Like the only reason none of us ended up being arrested or kicked out of school or anything is because we suck so badly socially that we can never even get to like not even you've heard like first base, second base, third base. We couldn't get the home, we couldn't get to the plate. We didn't make it into the on deck circle, which ended up being good mm. because the, the the stuff we were equipped with mm-hmm. was so toxic and consent violating that all of our lives would have been screwed yeah. if we had any sort. So it ended up working out. How do you counteract that? Let's say you have a child who goes to college or he goes to high school and he's with neurotypical kids who are also being taught bullshit. Mm-hmm. How do you counteract that? Yeah. How do you counteract the bad social advice from people who are their own age who are going to understand like where their headspace is at better than the parents? They just are because their kids their own age. Mm-hmm. How how do you and this is to be honest, this is more for boys because I feel like maybe girls get this too, but boys are the ones getting this really bad consent information, mm-hmm. which just are from other dudes. So h- how do you counteract that? I am going to go to a strategy that is not autism specific. And I'm going to go to a strategy as a mother of two boys and as somebody who's worked with a lot of parents. And I'm going to say... If you build a relationship of trust with your child, then you will be able to have those conversations. They will come to you and share with you, even if they don't think it's something bad, they're going to share with you and then you'll be aware of it. And then you can say, hey, well, wait a minute. They said what? And then you can have that conversation. The way to counteract it is you have to have a relationship where your kids are going to share with you because they're not going to share with you if they don't feel like they can trust. Which means you can't judge them when they do share exactly. with you, otherwise they're going to stop. Exactly. That's what I did with my aunt. As much as I love my aunt, I couldn't tell her anything without like getting without her judging me. Yep. So I just stopped telling her stuff. And then she was shocked. Like She was shocked to find out that I was a raging alcoholic. Because she, she was like, you drink? She didn't know I drank, even though I was in college. What kid goes away to college yeah. and doesn't drink doesn't at least drink. one? But she thought I was like, straight A's and just not going to parties. She was like, I knew you went to parties, but I didn't know you drank. First of all, who the hell goes to a frat party? You can't beat one of those unless you were thoroughly inebriated. Yep. But she like, I didn't know you drank. I thought you were getting straight A's. Meanwhile, I was, I was basically failing out of school mm-hmm. and I didn't know you were talking to anybody because I knew she judged me, so I didn't tell her stuff. So, you have, so from early on, you can't be judgmental. In particular, with a lot of the autistic girls I know, they've had parents, especially their fathers, who are incredibly judgmental. So they very quickly learn, I'm just not going to tell them anything. I, I think that that actually brings us to, you know, full circle back to consent. Because if you start early with allowing your children to give consent for certain things, then they're going to have a relationship of trust with you. And then you have built the foundation for them to come to you. And I say this from personal experience. There are things that I remember sharing at the dinner table. I'm a firm believer in hangout family time. If it's not at the dinner table, family meetings, or going to get ice cream or walking the neighborhood, because then you get sort of that spontaneous conversation where your kids are sharing without the pressure of you asking. And there are a lot of things that my parents have not a lot, but there are a few things that my parents have been able to, um, for lack of a better way, save me from harm by me just sharing something that I didn't even think was a problem, right? I didn't think it was wrong, but because I felt comfortable just sharing my day and vice versa, the same has happened with me and my boys, right? Just sharing things, talking about things. I mean, of course, now I think maybe I did too good of a job because now they share everything. And there's some stuff that I just think we need to have boundaries on not sharing. But- <laughs> Like there's some, some stuff I'm like, I, you'd rather have the oversharing than the I don't want to be, um, what is it? There was a show I saw once with Roseanne Barr and she told her daughter, she said, why don't you just leave me in the dark? Like all the other parents, kids <laughs> don't share, don't tell me. Um, but it is a wonderful thing because having that relationship, I was able to, um, know that my son was in trouble when he needed me. Um, and that doesn't happen all the time. So it's really about 
the consent, right? Giving consent on small things when they're younger and respecting their um, boundaries and their personal space and respecting their feelings because it's a lot when you, you know, I think you made a really good point in the beginning, Torin, in terms of we're teaching them this is how you have relationships with people. And then we wonder why they get into abusive situations. You've taught them that their feelings don't care because every time they express their feelings, you tell them to be calm, shut it down, be calm. It's okay. It's nothing wrong. It's nothing wrong. So now you've taught them that the relationship with other people is about them not being honest about their feelings. And then they can be sort of, it's abusive. They get in those relationships where their feelings don't count. And I don't think that, that people think about that. And certainly it's not talked about enough because it is what we do is what we're teaching our kids, how to relate to other people. No, exactly. And before we go, I actually have what I think is sort of a story that I find a little bit amusing mm -hmm. that sort of reflects what you just said. So one time it was towards the end of a semester at college. And I had this friend who she she's, I don't know, I haven't talked to her in years, so I don't know if she ever got diagnosed, but she definitely was on the spectrum. Like this textbook, like quote unquote female autism. Mm -mm. We didn't really know that back then. This was like 10 years ago. So back then we still thought autism mainly affects like white boys, but definitely uh, on the spectrum. And she was the one I mentioned a few minutes ago that she didn't tell her parents anything mm -hmm. she was up to in college. Mm -hmm. And she was up to a lot, if you understand what I mean. So towards the end of the semester one day, she spends the night in my dorm, doesn't tell her, doesn't tell her father. Her father mm -hmm. thinks she's back home in New York City. Here's, here's where she screws up. So she, her, her father then calls her friend, a mutual friend of ours, to say, mm -hmm. oh, is so-and-so, I'm not going to say the name, is so-and-so uh, with you because she wasn't picking up the phone. And so-and-so had forgot to ask her friend to run cover for her. <gasps> oh, no! Needless to say, he, started, he, he was pissed and started finding out a lot of stuff and it didn't go over well. And I chastised her because I said, she needed to be more open with her parents about what she was doing. Meanwhile, my aunt thought I was 500 miles away. Oh my gosh. She thought I was on a train heading back to New York City. But see, the difference between me and her is I made sure my aunt had none of my friend's contact information. She had no way of confirming where the hell I was. That's so, so the funny. moral of the story is if you're going to lie to your parents, either make sure if they have access to your friend's numbers that they know that you're lying or make sure they don't have access to your friend's numbers. That is the moral story. And Stacy, that's why we're working to- Shift the narrative on everything autism. See ya.